from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser. This is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, it's about doing good with money. I gotta mention now, we got some awesome episodes coming up, some really great interviews that are just going to be coming out each and every week. Every week, I mean, it's about the three Gs, personal growth, professional growth, and of course, business growth, because we all want to grow our business. So let's get back to today's show, because we're going to be chatting about money. Being rich, having wealth, I don't know why, but it's kind of taken a weird turn to where people feel yucky, even guilty for having money. I mean, millionaires, billionaires, you know, saying that they're going to give away all their money when they die, stuff like that. It's kind of crazy. And today's guest is going to tell you how you can still be rich, but still kick butt while doing good. So who do we have today? None other than Bessie Graham. Bessie Graham is an award-winning entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience working with business owners, governments, and large funding bodies to bring doing good and making money back together. From the grassroots of sitting in the dirt, working with business owners in the Pacific Islands, to the United Nations headquarters in Geneva, Bessie has seen it all and brings an unparalleled perspective on what makes change happen. So hey, without further delay, let's bring Bessie right on in here. Creative and innovation tips. Betsy, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Fantastic. <laughs> That's the best answer I have received yet, I've got to tell you. <laughs> so we have a tradition on this show. We ask every single guest, doesn't matter if you've been on the show for 10 times or it's your first time on the show. We have to ask everybody, what's your background? What's your experience? What do you do for a living? How'd you get there? Tell us your life journey. And in a nutshell, what makes Bessie, Bessie? Well, if you wanted to give a really straightforward, easy answer, you'd probably say that I'm a business consultant or coach, but that's a bit boring. (laughs) And it doesn't kind of speak to the bits that actually light me up and, and what I'm passionate about. So the common theme across my whole career, and if I look back over 20 years now, is that I'm someone who is really passionate about business because I feel that business can play an incredible role in society. And often we sort of put it in this little box and just talk about profit maximization and very small one-dimensional aspects of what business is. But my theme across the different businesses I've started and run is that I love to help people figure out how can you bring doing good and making money back together. And so that has taken many forms and I've been a serial entrepreneur, set up organisations from a an incubator for social enterprises and small and medium enterprises across Australia and the Pacific Islands through to setting up funds to then invest in those organisations. So the the common theme is that that idea, doing good, making money, how do you bring them back together? Uh, And it's been a really fascinating journey through ethical and impact investment, as well as that really strategic work with business owners around running their business more effectively. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think that's a very interesting topic because you can do good while making profit. A lot of people think that you can only do one or the other or like, oh, we've got to be a foundation or, or a charity. And it's like, no, you can still make money. You can still be rich if you want to be rich and still have a, a positive impact on the world with whatever you're doing. In fact, we just had a guest on a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And he was on here. We didn't get into it too much, but I mean, that, that was part of what he was talking about was, you know, the, the positive social impact and, you know, the corporate stuff, but still making a profit, still having a successful business. And I believe, uh, what were they called? Like a uh, B Corps or something like that. We, yep. B Corps. And they, you know, we, we started just to uh, scrape the surface of that. Then we're going to bring them back on next season to kind of get more details of it. 
But um, I don't know, maybe that'd be a really good point to start. Well, before I do that, I've got to ask because everybody's probably wondering, you know, they're listening here in the States and you have an accent. So why don't we tell them where you're from? I am based in Australia. So in Melbourne, Australia, grew up in Sydney, uh, but have have traveled all over the world. But yes, this is home. So that's an Australian accent you're hearing, you know, evening for you. And it's very early morning for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, we, we get a lot of people that interview from uh, Australia. In fact, as we record this, our latest episode was with the uh, Gabrielle Dolan, uh, who's from Australia as well, too, a uh, uh, good business author. So that is really cool. It seems like the the show really takes off and has a little bit of an audience there because it, it comes down to there's a lot of core principles in business that I think no matter where you do them, there there's constants. You know, it, it's going to be the same mentality or ethics or whatever that you should have. If you're doing business in Australia or the U.S., yes, obviously, marketing campaigns, stuff like that, you're probably going to target things a little differently. But there's four principles that I think really traverse the globe. Do you agree with that? Yeah. So let's get into the first part of what I wanted to ask you, which was the B Corps. Okay. Uh, do, do you want to give like an explanation kind of for listeners out there that aren't familiar? Because B Corps... They exist. I think a lot of people don't really know what they are because there aren't a lot of them. It's not like LLC or LLPs out here or Inks or, you know, with corporations or an S Corp or those types of things. But a B Corp um, is a really, I, I don't know, I find it to be an intriguing type of company. So, would you mind explaining that to us? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I think one of the pieces, as you mentioned, there's lots of different legal structures that you can set a business or an organisation up as. And in many respects, for me, when I think about how we can have impact in the world and what we're doing, the legal structure or the type of corporation we set up is a secondary question um, because it really depends what you're trying to do as to whether you should set up as a non-profit or a charity or a a, a um, a structured company that is for profit or or a B Corp. But the idea really behind something like a B Corp is to say, as more people are starting to look for signals and ways to see that a business takes seriously the impact it's having on the environment or the uh, the team, the culture within the organisation and other factors that it is influencing, they're wanting to be able to see a a way to identify that that company is being held to higher standards. So um, <clears throat> is there a way to accredit that, that organisation as engaging differently? And so a B Corp is a way to signal that to your customers or to society that you're looking out for not just profit but also the impact on the planet and that type of, type of piece. For me, I think it's a, a wonderful, like I said, signaling tool. It's a great way to start to differentiate or position yourself as an organisation. But just like there's been a big movement for decades around ethical investment or social enterprise or different namings like that, when I think about the real power of business, I would love to get to a point where we didn't have a social enterprise as a type of business or need to differentiate but it was that all businesses should be thinking about the impact they're having because whether we are conscious of it or not and taking responsibility for it or not, every business is having an impact. It just may not be a positive one. So what does that look like? So it's certainly any of these um, types of structures can be great ways for you to have some external validation that you are taking things seriously around environmental impacts and those types of issues. But you can also do this without a structural change to the organisation. You can look for low-hanging fruit and you can just run your business differently uh, to actually have that positive impact in the world. That is an excellent, excellent explanation. Um, and it really reminds me of a guest that we just had on the show, Lizzie Horvitz, uh, who's the CEO of Finch. And when she was on here, she basically was 
on the opposite end of what you're looking through. So you're looking at it from the business side. She was looking at it through the consumer side as far as how do you know if what you're buying is actually good or or bad for the environment? And she brought up some uh, crazy data and statistics for us, uh, which was was pretty cool to hear. Like she really, really knew her stuff. Um, I was severely impressed with her knowledge. Um, you know, like she was telling us that if you're going to buy a metal straw, the environmental impact on that is the exact same uh, of using a hundred plastic straws. So unless you're going to use that metal straw more than a hundred times, okay, it's actually you know nullifies the the difference. It's worse for the environment because of the production, the the eco power, the carbon, whatever it is to produce that one metal straw. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I thought that's kind of cool. It's like the same thing, but on the opposite sides, right? Looking at it from the consumer side, not the business side. And I think what that example identifies is that if we care about the aspect of how do we leave the world for our children or grandchildren or what does what does our ultimate impact or legacy look like, then when it gets too big and each individual consumer has to be able to do research on every single product or service they buy, we get overwhelmed and so we end up not doing anything and you, you just buy what you like and you don't really engage. The the lever that we have to pull as business owners is that if we bring back those things that have for decades been seen as externalities, so things where we go, that's not my problem, I don't need to ask that question about my supply chain, I just look at my costs and I need to sell it to make money here. If we instead had each business owner saying, what are the things that I have control over? How am I making decisions? How am I spending money? That's doable. So each business can then actually genuinely shift the impact they are having in the world. And as consumers, then it's about simply finding businesses where you trust them or have some of those identifying ways to say, yes, this group is thinking about their supply chain or whatever the particular issue is. And then we start to have that scalable solutions to the issues that are really, really deeply entrenched in society. That is, an, I, I think, a very thorough, very good and persuasive, uh, you know, argument there as far as what you're saying and how to look at things and change, you know, the way that businesses operate, you know, especially as you start looking through the supply chain. That's something I deal with my day job all the time with, you know, I'm in an ERP. So we work a lot with the manufacturers and distributors. And I know that they're always looking at, well, not just who their supplier is, but who's their supplier supplier and their supplier supplier supplier. Uh, you know, and what's their plan B's and C's, right? The full, the full chain of how those parts or products are being made and brought onto them. So uh, changing topics slightly, I wanted to ask you on your bio here, you had a point that uh, kind of really stood, a couple points that stood out to me. But the, the first one that stood out is you have the, uh, the mother, mother Teresa trap and how to avoid it. So what is the Mother Teresa trap? I've never heard that. Well, you know, I like to make things up. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's why um, I've never heard it. <laughs> that's why you've never heard of it. Um, really, it, it's, it was me trying to put a name to something that I see happen very often when someone has been running a business out there in the world doing their thing and they come to this crossroads or this point in their life where they say, oh, I, I want to contribute, I want to give back, I want to make a difference. And a little bit like your example with the straw, if someone doesn't understand the context of an issue they then jump into and try to help, a whole bunch of unintended consequences happen. Wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about a Twitter chat? Uh, Twitter feed right there. That sounds exactly like what happens on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I think it happens everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, probably anywhere that there's humans involved, maybe that's yeah, the common, common denominator. So the idea really is, is to say, while we might have good intentions, 
if we come out of one context and and put ourselves into a context that we don't actually fully understand, there's a whole bunch of traps and things that can happen that you need to just be aware of. And so there's a few key patterns that I've seen uh, when people make this sudden shift and they're trying to to give back. One of them is the idea of a saviour complex. So whether we like it or not, we can come into a setting with what ultimately is uh, comes across as arrogance because we kind of say, you've got this problem, I have the solution, let me come in and fix this for you. And it just doesn't work. And I know uh, from from your background. I'll, I'll be truthful. I think there's a, a lot of people have savior complex issues. <laughs> I think I, I see it all the time and it's a, it's a major turnoff. It's like, eh, yeah, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, I guess, you know, but I really don't like that person. It's not someone I would jive with personally. It, it's, you know, it's ne- that's a negative deal to me. It's a really negative. So that's, that's the first trap because it is, as you said, it's it, not only is it negative, but it, it doesn't end up having as much impact as you hope it will. Because the reality is, if you look at, there was an extraordinary woman, she's passed away now, um, but who has uh, worked in the UK, who, uh, Pamela Hardigan, who talked about this idea of apprenticing with the problem. And one of the things that if you come in with a saviour complex without apprenticing with the problem, it's like people will say, oh, I'm going to set up an orphanage in Africa. And you think, well, Africa is not a country. and um, what do you know about the particular setting you're going into? So it's this desire that something's seen on a surface level as a problem and I can fix that, but we haven't apprenticed with the problem. And what will then happen is that you're not designing a solution with the people that are actually going to use this. And so you can't possibly foresee what will what will play out. So without sort of spending the whole conversation on safety complex, which we we both know is an issue, it's sort of that's that first trap which which can happen when we flip into wanting to make a difference and seeing our good intentions as being enough to mean we will make a difference, which just uh, doesn't play out. The second trap that I see very often, which is is quite connected to the saviour complex is this idea of power dynamics. So if we aren't conscious of the power dynamics at play, then again, all of these different things happen where we can end up setting up uh, relationships where people tell us what, what they think we want to hear because if you've got the money or the power coming in, then people say, yes, we would like that orphanage when actually they might be thinking what we really needed was a hospital. We didn't need an orphanage. Or clean water, for example. Exactly. There's so many things. For me particularly, the power dynamics component is a really significant one. So if if you've grown up, I grew up in a situation where we didn't have the financial resources of other people. And so I was always tuned into how the people responded <laughs> and, and what were those power dynamics and how did that work? And so I use that in, in my all of my work, even now, around just watching and listening to people and going, okay, what's happening here in terms of power? But that trap when people aren't conscious of it and they don't think about and really question their own, what is my own bias here? What are my motivations in coming in and helping? That that piece can have really unhelpful um, flow and effects. So, so it's another trap. And then Two of the other common traps are around there's this idea of romanticizing suffering. So again, when we think of that uh, Mother Teresa trap, the way I would connect that back to her story, as beautiful and transformative as many of the aspects are of her work, the the unfortunate piece of if you set up a situation where actually someone else's suffering needs to be on display for you to be able to raise money or get attention for your cause there's this unhelpful piece that can happen, which is we end up prioritising or incentivising the wrong behaviour because I need to have images of suffering to give to funders for them to feel sorry for someone. And instead of actually saying, how do I eradicate your suffering? How does that not actually be present anymore? We accidentally set up a scenario where we've romanticized and, and highlighted the suffering rather than the solution. There are so many, so many issues that I could touch on that I mean 
people listening to this right now, you could probably name 10 issues off the top of your head that are usually social issues that fall right to that. I mean, even within just the the United States, I mean, you, you could look at, um, you know, even what's going on between Russia, Ukraine, stuff like that, you know, that that's probably more of a global type uh, example there. But, you know, people rushed right away, you know, with uh, a savior complex and romanticizing the issue uh, without fully understanding everything that's going on. And now as we look at it, I don't know, I kind of see that there's a lot of misinformation from both sides flowing. Uh, I don't know what's true anymore. Which again brings us right back to that piece that can happen for us as business owners and consumers. Whenever something gets so disconnected from the the pieces that we can actually influence and control and make decisions over, we end up getting overwhelmed and going, well, I can't actually help in this situation. So that that's really an important point, I think. But yeah, so that sort of that was three of the the four most common pieces that I see in that Mother Teresa trap. You going to hold out on the fourth one? Oh sure, no, I can I can go there. <laughs> the the last the last one that that we see a lot. I mean, you can't just give us three out of four. I mean, that's only seventy five percent. The fourth one is around this cult of the heropreneur. So there's you know entrepreneurs, but then many times whether it's someone like Mother Teresa or the founder of an organisation that really takes off, they become a hero. They're sort of put on this pedestal and a whole bunch of the attention and focus shifts to this person and we end up being in a situation where they're not allowed to be questioned, they couldn't possibly um, be wrong and the, again, unhealthy, unintended consequences that come from that mean that if we come right back to the idea in the first place, which was about I've identified this issue that I want to contribute to and help change in the world, the when we fall into that trap of the heropreneur, we actually reduce the chance that we will have a positive impact and we increase the chance that a whole bunch of unintended things will happen. So that's sort of four of those common pieces I see, which again, we all need to be careful of because as we switch over into wanting to start to be more focused on how do I contribute, how do I leave a legacy, how do I have a positive impact in the world, we just need to be conscious that, like the straw example, that we've actually thought about what what is it I'm contributing to and how will I know if I've actually made a difference. Yeah, so you, you just mentioned a key word there, uh, which was legacy. And... I was thinking, you know, in older times, I think a lot more people were thinking about their legacy and what they left behind. I still think that people do worry about their legacy, but I think most of the people that worry about their legacy today are people that probably have like the hero complex, like you were talking about, Um, you know, me like, yeah, I have what, by legacy within my family, you know, or, or friends, colleagues, and think like, oh, you know, David was a, a good man, a strong business leader, you know, family man, stuff like that. Uh, but outside of that, like, I'm not too worried, at least at this point in my life, about uh, uh, a, a legacy to those degrees. I mean, what do you think about that? Is that a misconception or is that kind of a truth or a half truth? I certainly think that that reflects what is a broader sense or engagement with the idea of legacy. Because as you said, I think um, for many people, there is an aspect of ego connected to, oh, well, who do you think you are if you're leaving leaving a legacy? Um, So that can seem quite strange. And so again, human nature, we tend to go to extremes, right? So we we go to either, oh, that's a big ego thing for someone who's in, either incredibly wealthy or well-known or something, or we think of legacy down at that level of the nuclear family and the, okay, what will I leave for my children? And so we go really big or quite, quite small. Wow. You just connected the dots in my head. I see exactly where you're going with this. Well, let's see if I'm right, okay? I, I want to I test out the theory, but uh, let's see if I'm right, okay? I'll let you continue, but uh, I just had one of those light bulb moments. Now I'm super curious of your light bulb moment, but anyway, okay. Um, so the the if we kind of go down that idea of, well, 
what could this look like and, and what is the opportunity? Um, I've, I, I said to you before we, we came on that my podcast, for example, is called Both And. I'm someone who is always looking for, don't pick either or. Like who says you have to choose from extremes? That you can design something that incorporates both. And I think for me, particularly when we look at business owners, the aspect around legacy that I would like to plant seeds for people on is to say legacy doesn't just have to go into a martyrdom category or a Mother Teresa thing of like give everything away or when you sell the business at that point or retirement, you will set up a foundation and it's all external. So it doesn't have to be this selfless giving everything away, but it also isn't just about you and this huge ego piece of your name on buildings, et cetera. So this idea of if you want to create legacy that's double-sided is how I think about it, then it has to come from a place that taps into those pieces of you, your family, who you actually are. So we have to actually know and understand what matters to you. And then that piece makes it fulfilling and rich and means you will have a meaningful life. But the piece that draws it up into a much bigger system isn't about ego. It's about saying, what do I want to be part of contributing to in the world? And that piece brings the legacy out of the the small space, but it's not about ego. It's actually bigger than you. Something that maybe you help start, but lives on after you're gone, you know, as far as that, that that's kind of where I was going, you know? Yeah. But again, I think one of the pieces that's important when we start to have these conversations, particularly when we're, we're talking with business owners. And so if we focus in on the, the aspect of business's role in any of this legacy or having an impact in the world, is going to look different for each business or each person. The the fact is we care about different things and that's good because I don't actually want a world where every single person is obsessed with plastics in the ocean because there's other issues as well, right? That's some people need to be obsessed with that, but some people need to be looking at domestic violence and some people need to be looking at aspects around the treatment of animals. So we can all care about different things and one is not better than the other. So it's not like if someone's impact is around um, aged care and the aging population, that's less important than early childhood education. They're different, right? Uh, But I think we need to allow each person to be interested in what they're interested in. But I want that to then be intentional because I think one of the pieces that makes us end up feeling either resentful or burnt out as really busy entrepreneurs and business owners out there doing all of this stuff is that when we don't have a common thread between what we're doing where we don't see, ah, this is deeply me and I can see the connection between what I'm doing and what I care about, then we get exhausted eventually. We can't sustain that. So that's, that's important to actually own and honor what you, what you, what drives you, what do you value? So here's an interesting question for you uh, with a, I guess you can say controversial or semi-controversial figure like Mr. Elon Musk, for example. Okay, a lot of people love him. A lot of people hate him. But I mean, his corporations with what he did with Tesla really changed the games in eco-friendly vehicles, making the other major auto manufacturers like really start modernizing their tech and their vehicles to be more eco-friendly. We have all the SpaceX ventures where, you know, getting up there into space, trying to get to Mars, you know, Starlink, where you know you can get a high-speed internet in places where you couldn't before, uh, which is a positive social impact. I mean, what uh, there's got to be, a, you know, the the boring company uh, with the holes trying to figure out the social problems for you know cars to make it faster. Which I heard is probably out of all his projects. I think the uh, the one that's not working as planned as much as planned. But uh, you know, given everything that you've said up until this moment. With uh, you know, legacy, you're talking about the Mother Teresa trap. You're you're talking about doing good, making a profit. I mean, what's your take on somebody 
like him. Again, a little bit like I said, we need people to care about different things. We absolutely need people who operate and think at different levels of the system. So Mm -hmm. clearly not everyone is able to operate like an Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. But the world would not make the incredible leaps it can make if you didn't have people who could be catalysts in the right. way that he does. So again, I, I don't think it's a a bad thing to have people where you don't have to agree with every single thing they do. They're not going mm-hmm. to get everything right, but none of us right. are. So so I think, again, it's that piece of we don't need to go to extremes of... Right. I think people go to the extreme. Yeah. They say, he says one thing they don't like, and all of a sudden, you know, they, they, they want to cancel. Nothing he's done is valid. Yeah, right. Nothing he's done is valid. It's all, nope, nope, nope. You know, let's burn my $80,000 Tesla. And, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, think about it, even just, you know, with the environment, like what he's doing with, um, SpaceX, like, yes, some people are, are mad because they're like, well, look how much fuse being burned, um, you know, for each one of those, uh, launches that he's doing, that's not very eco-friendly, but then if you look at it, NASA, um, and I believe Russia as well too, were using you know, ships that were pretty much, you know, like one-time rocket launchers. I mean, it's really not until with SpaceX. The embodied energy in that. Right. That that you have something that's reusable. That's amazing. I think too, and this comes back to something that anyone who is uh, and has any level of facing with the public has had to learn, which is not all criticism is equal, right? So not all voices should be listened to. Most of the time, if you dig into the people who are criticizing on those types of issues, you would then, if you actually said to them, so talk to me about the aspect of how you're using water in your house. How are you? They haven't got a grey water system and they're thinking about what water is being used in the washing machine as opposed to the toilet as opposed. So it's like, I don't think we can criticize at that level unless... You're looking at the mirror. People living in glass houses throwing rocks, not a good idea. (laughs) Right, right. I absolutely, absolutely 100% agree with you. Um, And, you know, while we're we're talking about uh, Elon Musk, I mean, let's just go right into uh, the, you know, there is a big discomfort uh, about wealth in this country. Um, I think it's something that is starting to trend a little bit more globally. Um, I'll give you an example. My wife is Peruvian and they got their first uh, true Chavista. Uh, you know, that's what they call them after Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. Um, they got their first, uh, you know, Chavista president that they currently have right now, which is more of a socialist president. And why? Well, a lot more poor people in Peru than there are people of middle or higher incomes. So that's where it's like the socialism looks better, but you know the wheels are already coming off, and things are getting extremely bad. And you know it's it just weird because you know twenty years ago it, it was like it was like cool to be wealthy, you know what I mean? And now you look at where we're at today, and it, it's like, oh wait, you make money, oh. No, that that's disgusting, you know? So talk to me about that. Why is there such discomfort around wealth, you know? And again, this is not localized U.S. phenomenon. I think it's really a globalized phenomenon. I think if you look historically, any of these things go in patterns or waves, right? So we have the same pieces repeat themselves. So what will happen is there's an aspect where we might have a period where people are, aspirational and want to become wealthy. And then we see a whole bunch of either bad behavior or things play out that then vilifies the wealthy. And so then it's not seen as a good thing and we cycle into a a different different phase. So I think there are patterns at play. That's kind of funny that you mentioned that because have you read the fourth turning at all? I, so in terms of generations, yes, I haven't read. So yes, so seeing the, uh, the, those patterns play out and, and that's in many books um, and many historical kind of, when you look, when you zoom out and you look at a big enough uh, 
sort of time frame, you will see different patterns. Yeah, I would let's tell the guess exactly what the fourth turning is, because that to me is exactly what sounds like what you're explaining. So the fourth turning is a book that came out probably about late 90s-ish. Okay. And they these are two like legit side of the uh, scientists that were or you know historians and they were doing studies. And I guess coincidentally, they were talking at some event. They met each other. They didn't know each other beforehand or whatever. They met each other. They talk, and they like light bulbs went off in their heads. Like, wait, our research coincides. And what they ended up discovering was mostly in Anglo Saxon areas of the world, is what they called it, was that there, we lived in 80 year cycles. And uh, he did say, though, that when they took a step back, everywhere lives in a cycle just that it might not be exactly 80 years and that's another thing they also said that it's you know plus or minus 80 years but um uh that uh everywhere is on a cycle and the cycle i think they said it could be a varying lengths depending on the country or the area but everybody was on a cycle and he was basically like hey if this is true you know this is our prediction and it's crazy because the fourth turning of what they called it is we're we're at that time period uh, which i really predicted i think was 2022 to 2026 or 2028 like in this time period right here of where like major change was going to happen and then after this major change, then you would be to the first turning. It's like the cycle is resetting, that we're at the end of the cycle. And it, it's an amazing book. It's I guess it's hypothetical technically because they're waiting to see how things play out the next decade to see if they're proven right or wrong. But it does go over many uh, cycles. And as you said, it's that piece of, of looking at the age you were when certain events happened shapes how you as then an adult will shape how that next cycle plays out. So those ideas, I mean, even if someone hasn't read the book, at the level of an individual family, you see that. So we see patterns where parents will have kids young and then their children will react to that and say, I'm not having kids till I'm older because I need to have a life first. And then their kids will say, you were an old parent. I want to be a young parent. And the cycle, would, you know, so we we see that in even the, the simplest. Did you? There you go. I don't know. It's, it's like a... Uh who was it the other day one of my colleagues were like what do you just have like a diaper complex or what because i have a 19 year old so i had a 19 year old yeah, i'm 39 now so do the math i was probably 19 when he was born um uh yeah i turned 20 in fact i turned 22 weeks 14 days exactly after he was born um but uh so i had a 19 year old then i have a nine-year-old and then i have a five-year-old now the only thing with the the five-year-old, you know, I kind of have uh, uh, regrets because, you know, it's just financial systems, stuff like that, working on the career. It's kind of like had the regrets, didn't do that uh, him a little sooner. But, you know, it is it is what it is. Those cycles, as you said, everyone's experience of it is different, but I think we can all find it, find ways, even if it's not over the huge time periods that the generations looks at. Yeah, that's right. We can we can see see that in different levels, but I think the that that same piece sort of just plays out in in any of these um, conversations. So it's looking at, um, as you said, that discomfort with wealth. I would say is a reflection of the within the lived experience of people when they have seen those with wealth either abuse that system. So we saw um, times where people who had worked really hard but were struggling weren't protected, but then massive corporations could flaunt their wealth, give huge bonuses to people, and then the government would bail them out. And you think, hang on a minute, um, how does that work? So I think there has been experiences and there have been... That is absolutely true. I mean, look at 2008, 2009, 2010 in the US. So the problem is we've had too many examples like like that where there has been uh, corporations or the private sector taking advantage of and behaving poorly. So that is self-imposed. But again, just like the example you gave of the book of zooming out, I would say when we think about business and its role in society, the types of things that we're talking about today and this idea of figuring out how to bring doing good back inside your business is not a new idea. It's returning to the roots of business. Because if you go all the way back, 
trade, commerce, bartering, all of these things are deeply human. It is how we have always interacted. And almost nobody starts a business hoping to tread on people's throats and take advantage of people and abuse the system and just make money at all costs. Usually to make a living, you know, and, and or provide a service. That they have a particular product or service that they feel will help people or change people's lives or that they are a craftsman or a craftsperson and, and they want to make this beautiful thing. That's the one thing I loved about living down in Tijuana, Mexico. I lived down there for about 15 years and people would be, you know, a lot of poor people in Mexico and in Tijuana. Uh, it's a very migrant city, meaning that people are flowing through it as a transit city. And, you know, people would do anything to earn money. I mean, I remember, like, think of speed bumps, okay? The city wouldn't be paying into speed bumps. So you'd have, you know, a poor fella that maybe has no shoes on, no shirt, uh, just pair of pants on and probably wearing a hat and he would get a pan you know a can of paint and he'd paint the the, the speed bump so that people would see it and then get tips from the people in the neighborhood i mean that's still being a business over odor and trying to find a creative way to make money yeah you know i mean i i was blown away by how many times i've seen instances like that like holy cow the dude's providing a service and he's getting, you know, making some money doing it, like, go for it. I, I loved it. That's a great example of that deeply human component of, okay, what can I offer of value someone will pay for? So it's that exchange of value. Right? And so I would say with that aspect of the discomfort with money, we we need to be able to take a bigger picture and then decide what we're taking responsibility for because it is everywhere. As you said, it's not just um, in the US, but even if you look at really sort of popular examples, I'm always horrified when I see articles that are, whether it's someone like Mackenzie Scott or Melinda Gates or different people who have uh, come into wealth and then there's this very quick public aspect of but I'm giving it all away like there's wanting that that separation from the wealth is part of this discomfort here in Australia I'm not sure if you use Canva but one of the founders of Canva uh, Melanie Perkins it's always in the paper that she has said she will give all her money away and I think you know why do we make those statements because once you're, you've publicly said this you can't come back from it and yet giving away all your money, A, as some of those examples I used earlier, it's not actually easy to do that well. Like that's that's tricky. <laughs> but also, why do we not go into that word I used around Elon Musk, so the catalyst idea? Why do we not look at our wealth in all of the aspects of that, what that brings and say, how could I use some of this to actually, in a granting philanthropic way without expecting a return, catalyze some change I want to see, but in ways that are connected to then I'll provide some patient capital where it just has to return the amount I invest, but I don't have to make any. I just want my investment back. I just need my money back. Then I will have some where I'm actually willing to take some really serious risk. But if it works, I want to be paid for it. You know, So we can engage in different levels, just like anyone would in a portfolio. But, but it's this idea of saying there is an opportunity and a platform that is provided with wealth. And rather than try to distance yourself or feel uncomfortable with that, embrace it. Because I would rather people have access to wealth who are thoughtful and who are being um, both strategic and wanting to contribute to things they care about. I want those kind of people to have wealth in their hands, not people who are selfish and have their ego all about it. So that that's, I think, just an encouragement for people to not, you don't need to be ashamed or want to distance yourself from wealth. I don't mind if they're crazy. If, if you're doing things that are good and trying to change the, the world, then, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, like you talked about Gates, um, you know, whether it's him or, or Elon or, you know, Zuckerberg. I mean, you, you can go with all these uh, crazy big tech uh, billionaires, but I mean, they're at least trying or originally their intent was try to uh, make the world better. Uh, not always getting it right, especially like if you look at the, look at Facebook, for example, you know, not always getting it right. 
But I, I think the original intent was just connecting people, socializing with people. Yeah. And I think the important point in all of those examples you, you just gave, well, other than probably Elon Musk doesn't sit in this category, but the others do, the distinction that I think we need to make is that if instead of having this disconnect between how they've made their money and then trying to do good, if we bring those back together and if we say, what is it about the work you're doing, the business you're building or that you own that is actually able to have a positive impact in the world, not just the externalising of what you then do with wealth after, because it is as important how you make the money as it is what you do afterwards. So we don't want to, well, I don't want to be encouraging people to wait until they've made the money or they've sold the business to then think about it. I want you to look at the opportunities that lie within the, the actual core business of what you do. So that, that I think is an important distinction. Right, right, right. Understood. So while we're talking about wealth, uh, one final question here. How can we make you wealthy? How can people reach out to you, get in contact with you, find your show? Tell us all about you, please, Bessie. Sure. So, I mean, if if people are looking for someone who actually understands both of those equations, because again, I would say that it's easy to find a great business coach or an advisor to help you grow the financial side of your business. You can go out and find someone to help you give your money away. The unique aspect of what I work with business owners on is to say both of those have value and let's figure out what it looks like uniquely for you to actually have the freedom and fulfillment you want using your business as that foundational springboard for you to make a difference in the world. So if that's something that's of interest, people can first of all just um, have a listen to my podcast, Both And with Bessie Graham, and otherwise go to my website, bessiegraham.com, and just reach out to me directly there or on Instagram or LinkedIn, wherever you prefer. And my preference is let's have a conversation because it's always, you know, better to connect with people and, and understand what they need. So would be really happy to explore that. Definitely. This has been, uh, this has been fun. I'm, I'm surprised because I was wondering, uh, just looking at your profile, I wonder how many things I will or won't agree with her on. And uh, because again, when I get someone with a profile like yours, a lot of times it's kind of like, it's extreme, either one way or the other. And having someone come on the show that is straight down the the middle, like really fair and balanced and thinking about it with the approach that you do. I mean, it's refreshing that people like you actually do exist out there in the world. Even if I have to do a Zoom call with you so early in the morning from Australia, but we found somebody. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing, Bessie. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Looking forward to uh, chatting to some of your listeners. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And we'll, uh, everybody knows we'll have the link down below in the description, in the pinned comment. Uh, look for it. And please, I urge you to reach out to Bessie. She's amazing. Thank you all. Wow, that was an incredible chat with Bessie, right? It's just one of those conversations that I just really, really love because they're just so nuanced. First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it gave you those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret in the world to small business, please do me a favor. Share us out to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anywhere that you dwell on the interwebs, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Minds, Rumble, Odyssey, wherever it is, just help share the word out of Shark Bite Biz. I'd love to see nothing more than Bessie Graham and Shark Bite Biz out there trending. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, Bessie. Such a great discussion. I love being visionary and talking about big things that really advance the world. And you could tell from the discussion, Bessie is also very passionate about that same subject, wealth, being rich, heck, even being super rich. Just as you heard with the interview with Bessie, you know, it is very nuanced, okay? 
You can still do good for the world if you are super rich. Elon, as we discuss, you know, extensively during this episode, uh, again, <laughs> I must add, uh, you know, he's a perfect example, okay? Yeah, he's a little polarizing right now. You either love him, you hate him, a lot going on with Twitter, all that stuff. But if you look at the good that he has done for this world with Tesla, really pushing those eco-friendly vehicles forward, forcing all the major car manufacturers to basically follow his lead to be able to compete you know his space missions using reusable rockets again that stuff's all amazing things like starlink where he's bringing internet access across the world to people that did not have it even in a war-torn country like ukraine right now where he made sure people out there had access to internet. That's all good things, and it's a perfect example of how wealth is nuanced. It's not all bad. You can do a ton of amazing things while doing good and earning money, okay? I, I think that's really what this whole discussion boils down to, and Bessie's mission of helping people do things like social corporations, B Corps, stuff like that. I mean, it is really, really, incredible what she's doing. Helping people earn money while making the world better is not a bad thing. It's not evil to profit if you're doing good. Follow your passion, follow your heart, and make a dollar while doing it. Awesome stuff, Bessie. Thank you so much about sharing about your mission and how you're trying to make the world a better place. Question of the day. What do you think of B Corps? Doing good while making money? On board, off board, leave a comment down below if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, do you want to be on the show? You know, interviews at Shark Bite Biz. We are starting to get filled for next year, but we do have some slots open later in the year. Uh, please, if you're watching on YouTube, join the channel for $3 a month. You can become a baby shark and support all the good that we're doing here at the channel. Also, if you love this interview, you love Bessie's message, give us a super thanks. It's that little heart uh, sign with the dollar sign over it. You know, a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars, whatever you can helps the show, helps us produce everything that we can. You all know this by now, but I'll tell you once again. I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story.